Hello, and welcome to Prophetic Voices, Preaching and Teaching Beloved Community, a podcast from the Episcopal Church's Office of Reconciliation, Justice, and Creation Care, where we explore the season and the lectionary through the lens of social justice. I'm your host, Reverend Shaniqua, Staff Officer for Racial Reconciliation, and I'm so glad you could join us. In this episode of Prophetic Voices, we'll be discussing the Advent 3 lectionary for Liturgical Year B. Our sweet guests this week are the exceptional Lindsay Delks, who is a policy advisor within the Office of Government Relations for the Episcopal Church, where he handles all domestic policy. In his free time, he enjoys the theater and watching rugby. The spirit-led Stephanie Paramus, who resides in Sewanee, Tennessee, and is an Episcopal Church Eco-Justice Fellow. She seeks to serve God and Christ within us all through justice work, creation care initiatives, and monastic spirituality. And last but not least, the Reverend Glenna Huber, who is the 15th Rector at Church of the Epiphany in Washington, D.C. She lives with her husband, two children, a dog, and lots of fish. Welcome, friends. Thank you so much for being willing to be guests on Prophetic Voices. I'm so excited that you all are here. Let's go ahead and just get started. What is important to keep in mind for Advent? What does Advent bring up for you? What's important to keep in mind this year? I'm excited to be here and really excited to be thinking about Advent at this particular time. One thing I know that culture tells us is that we are preparing for Christmas, right? We're preparing for the birth of Christ, those who celebrate Christmas, are, you know, with Jesus's birth. But really, I think sometimes we forget that we're preparing for the second coming of Jesus, right? We understand that Jesus is coming again. And what are we doing to get ready for that? And I don't, I don't know that we keep that at the forefront as we enter into Advent season. Reverend Shaniqua, thank you so much for for having me here. It's so good to be with you all. And Glenna, I really love the question that you bring up about how can we prepare ourselves during the season of Advent and this awaiting the incarnation of Christ and the second coming of Christ as well. And I think of other religious traditions, including our own, in our own liturgy, there is some preparation involved before the receiving of God or Christ to us, like how we confess our sins before receiving the body and blood of Christ. And so I, I love the question that you bring up regarding how can we prepare ourselves to, to receive this and this incarnation of Christ in the world. I think for a lot of people um, around the holiday season, it represents um, like a break or kind of like a renewal for a lot of people. Um, so I think one thing um, is how do we have that kind of mindset throughout the year, you know, not just certain times of month or, you know, prioritizing family and prioritizing giving year round and not just this particular season. What liturgical ideas do you have for Advent 3 or Advent in general? Trying to balance the joy of Advent with the realistic things that are happening in people's lives. Right. As Lindsay was saying, is family. Some of us have these really healthy, beautiful families. And some of us have families that we pray for from a distance, right? Mm -hmm. And so there's so much pressure. And I think it's liturgically holding that tension well of really unpacking what it looks like to be joyful, what it looks like to love everyone what it looks like to function with abundance, but not get absorbed into capitalist 
consumerism? And how do you do that in a, in a liturgical space and honor where the majority of the gathered are? I think it's, it's an interesting dance. Sometimes I think about contemplation and how do we put those contemplative moments into the service? Like, do we pause a little bit longer than usual? Do we take time? You know, like after the sermon, sometimes people stand up right away and just immediately go into the creed. Do we like take a moment to breathe first? Um, I know during Advent at the church, one of the churches I help out, we usually do hold an evening prayer on the Wednesdays as kind of an evening thing and try and have it be more of a contemplative type of thing. So the theme for Advent 3 is typically joy. Where do you find joy and where do you wish you had more joy? I think I most feel joy when I find Christ in others. And so naturally, I wish that I could do that more often. (laughs) I think that we do the kind of work that we do because on some level, our soul recognizes the truth that each of us contains, you know, God's spark of light in us. And I think that you know, in our work that we are seeking to protect and respect and serve our siblings. But I think often our own and other human just limitations can cause us to be blind to that. And I think it's it's important to note too, especially since Advent 3 is typically more of a joyful time, that joy and the hope for joy is so much more motivating than fear. And that's something that, you know, in another life, I was an animal trainer and very interested in mythology. And so I learned that firsthand. And I think that the hope that Christians believe in, you know, and that followers of Christ, that can be so motivating for us, you know, even more motivating than the fear of looking around at the world and being like, what is going on and what am I supposed to do, you know, in in response to this? And so I think it's worth asking how we can use this hope and this joy of the season to help restore justice and peace? Hmm. It's a great question. And it feels like there should be a very simple answer, right? One finds joy, particularly at Christmas time in the lights, maybe in the environment that you're in, maybe people have decorated their houses and that's fun, but juxtaposed against being in the wilderness, right? Like we're talking about God showing up in the most unlikeliest place. I don't know if that's always like joy filled, like the way society tells us that joy, what joy looks like. Gosh, it's just an interesting question. I don't know that it has a really, for me anyway, a real simple answer. I want to say that I find joy in the wonder of it all. It just feels like a season where you can just really be awe-inspired by what God is doing in the world, but you've got to have a heart that's open to, to seeing it. I find joy in the joy of others. I think especially around, you know, this season, this time of year, um, not only is it the holidays, but, you know, the beginning of a new year. And I think, you know, for a lot of people, there's a lot of joy in once January 1st hits, you can be wherever you want to be, you know, for the next year, you know, you can reinvent yourself completely or, or that kind of thing. So I think, you know, similar to what Stephanie said, I think we can bring more joy by, you know, how do we replace the fear of the new year and instead, you know, replace it with like joy and, and being hopeful and looking forward to things, I think is, is where we could find more joy. 
I think for me, I always find joy in community when the gathered community comes together, whether it's relatives or church or, you know, when we do things together and also seeing how things like Christmas or things like Advent can pull people together in ways that maybe we haven't thought about, especially when folks are realizing they're in relationship and not just thinking about themselves, which seems to always happen if you go shopping day after Thanksgiving. That's when everybody's like, it's all about me. Let me push everybody else out the way because I need a TV for $200 or whatever. Let's talk a little bit about the gospel. And throughout Advent, I know we have a lot of, in some of the colics and things like that, there's a lot of this light and darkness uh, conversation metaphor. Uh, how do we talk about John's description of Jesus using his light and dark without perpetuating ideas of shadism, colorism, or racism? There is, in fact, the separation of day and night. And we understand that in this season, where we celebrate this time of the year, the days are, in fact, shorter. Darkness does come earlier. How we embrace that time, I think, is worthy of deeper investigation, more conversation, bringing something that's countercultural to the dominant narrative. So what do you think it means when John, John writes about John the Baptist saying John the Baptist came to testify to the light? Well, growing up Southern Baptist and kind of shifting my own like personal beliefs kind of as an adult, you know, the way that we talked about the Bible, it was very fundamentalist. If this is what it's saying, then, you know, this is what it clearly means. As I got older and wanted to interpret things like good and bad or like, you know, good and evil, saying like coming to testify to the light, just meaning coming in a space to share those experiences, not necessarily speaking on behalf of like good, I guess necessarily, but just rather using that as like a set place to speak to something. The something is is something I'm still trying to figure out, but I, I'm like I said, I just don't think it's as black and white as good and bad, or when we talk about things like, you know, darkness and light, like you mentioned. I just see that as like a place of him using his voice to preach to something or to speak to something. Hmm. I think in our culture, in our society, we we use a lot of that language of light and dark. And even in the Bible, I mean, it's it's all over, you know, the light and dark imagery and metaphors. You know, there's other cultures that, that don't see light and dark in the same way that we do. And so I think that this is such an interesting question for us to ask ourselves about, okay, well, what does this really mean? What are we saying when we say light and darkness? I think the way that it's being used here in regard to the light is, you know, and what it means to testify and bear witness to the light. I think it's just referring in this specific instance of the light of Christ, you know, that exists on earth and within us all. And sometimes I kind of like to think about, you know, when I think of light and kind of that imagery of, of light shining through as being kind of points of reflection of this light in the world and that we recognize that the light is coming from somewhere divine, you know, and there's humility in that and there's honesty in that. And John the Baptist, you know, does a great job of saying that in this passage that we're reading where he says, you know, it's, it's very clear that he is, you know, a point of reflection in the world that is shining this divine light. He's quick to say, you know, to point to the divine light and not point to himself, for example. We can recognize that there is this kind of, you know, we say light in the Bible, that's kind of the language that's there, but we recognize it as, as something greater, as something divine. 
you know, in Lakota culture before colonization, we didn't have a concept of evil. We didn't even have a word for evil or temptation. We had to create those words after Christianity was brought to us. And so lightness, if you think about testifying to the light, light is what helps things to grow and transform. And so I'm wondering if that's kind of like testifying that there's going to be something coming that's calling us to grow and transform. And then darkness is the time to rest after you've done that work of growth and that work of transformation, or sometimes it's to prepare us for that growth that's going to be coming, right? You know, it's like the rest day just before you do like a big workout, or maybe it's the rest day after the big, after the big workout. I was thinking about that. I love that. Where have you heard the voice of one crying out in the wilderness in our time? And what are some of the voices you've heard? If we're viewing it as, you know, someone calling out from a place where, you know, lost, I think that can be found just in people who are seeking community. Mm. Um, I think that there's a lot of calls for, you know, we have a society where lots of things are virtual. Um, you know, lots of things are, are separated and it can be hard to gain community. So I think the wilderness can just be an example of being isolated. Um, but I can also think of the wilderness as an example of being in the middle of a place of growth. And I think that that can be calls from people who want to share, you know, the growth that they are seeing in their own lives. I really like that imagery, Lindsay, of being called into community. As I was thinking about wilderness, I've been really focused on ecological devastation. I've been intentional about preaching creation care this season. The wilderness after an environmental disaster. Hmm. We can look at Hawaii or earthquakes or wildfires, but the way the community in most of these cases have come together to rebuild or replant so that something new can emerge. There are these voices crying out in the wilderness and it, it doesn't necessarily have to be, you know, repent and return to the Lord, but come and grow with us. It wasn't until Lindsay said community that I kind of put that together for myself. It'd be an interesting preaching concept or direction. And if we think of, you know, that we're all related, not just people, but creation, that would also be a wilderness too. people seeking community because they've just lost their connection with the relatives around them, like the trees and plants and whatever else, the devastation they experienced. Which could bring us back around to the theme for the day is, is joy, right? So even in the midst of that devastation, if our hearts and minds and souls are open, we can still receive that joy by seeing, you know, God's face in the incarnate beings in our midst, which we call community. Hmm. So who are some John the Baptists of our time? Who are some people who point us toward transformation or salvation or call us back to right relationship? I think that that goes back to like the aspects of community. All of our communities should be in some ways like that, something that calls us back to transformation, that calls us back to growth and, and the things that you just named. All of those aspects should be 
you know, what we find in, in either familiar relationships or like chosen family or, or anything like that, those are all important. Um, I don't know if we can find all of those things in one person. As a society, we can find different things in different people, but I think expecting those things of one person, I, I don't know if we have a system for that. Lindsay, I think that's a really good point that you made about not expecting someone to kind of be this idealized version and kind of almost like our own Messiah in a way, like we're looking to this person to, to just help us, you know, so much. And you mentioned too, Lindsay, about how, you know, the John the Baptist of our time can operate as a way to kind of call us back to God. And I think of like, you know, I've been so blessed to, to know so many wonderful clergy and all of the churches that I've attended, but there's a few who have made a big difference in my own religious life or spiritual life, church life, and have been like a John the Baptist figure to me in terms of their prophetic voices in the Episcopal Church. So I think of Reverend John Omer, I think of Reverend Glenda McDowell, Reverend Millie Murrow, and these are all folks in Western North Carolina, because that's where I was for, <laughs> for a couple of years. But I will also take almost any opportunity to speak to Reverend Dr. Hillary Raining's prophetic voice in mm. the Episcopal Church. Um, we are so lucky to have her, you know, and she does so many amazing things. But I think the way that she uses her voice to cry out the truth of who we are, that we are God's children, and that our creator is love. I just feel like her voice is a healing bomb to to the sickness in the world. Because I think in recognizing that truth of who we are and who God is, that is to say love, I think that that would make it a lot more difficult for us to continue perpetuating the violence and, and the hatred in the world. Despite these prophetic voices crying out, the vast wilderness, so to speak, of this world, I think just makes it easy for us to lose sight of these truths and lose sight of the path, so to speak, and following the language of, of our reading. I was listening to the presiding bishop of the Episcopal Church, Reverend Michael Curry, this morning. It wasn't anything particularly spectacular. He has said this before about love. God is love. And for some reason, those words washed over me in a different way than they did maybe when I heard him say it last week. Mm. Wow. And maybe that's just the context of the way the world is today. Maybe it's just because I'm in D.C. and that is always this big mess of where you're just trying to figure out if these people could just love each other or at the very least respect each other, then we wouldn't be seeing this debacle play out in front of us. Hmm. And I feel like throughout presiding bishops episcopacy, that's all he's been saying. Like, can you all just love each other? Like God loves you. God loves you. Do you hear it yet? God loves you. Stop all this mess. You are loved and you don't have to prove it to anybody. Right. And I, I think for me right now, in this moment, in the context that I find myself in, he is John the Baptist. I feel like he's just out there trying to shake us into listening. Can you just listen? God loves you. 
I'm thinking too about like, you know, John the Baptist did try and connect with the people who were quite, well, he was kind of weird to begin with, but like he did try and connect these people who were very different, right? The Pharisees who typically wouldn't have given him the time of day, somehow he was able to build relationship and connect them. And I feel like Michael Curry does do that a lot. Who or what are some voices that we need to listen to right now that we haven't been hearing? There are so many individuals, communities that have been silenced or just they're talking and they're not being heard. Their words aren't being taken into account. So I, I think the list is, is so long. You know, where do you begin? One sector that I would love to hear more voices from is the food justice realm. Food justice is something that I've been working in for, for a while. And I would love to see more voices that are food justice workers in the Episcopal Church, getting their voices kind of recognized. And I would just love to see that. For those of our listeners who don't know what food justice is, Stephanie, can you give us a like a quick version? Yeah. So there is a lot of overlap with people who are poor, but essentially food justice work is so relevant, I think, especially to the Episcopal Church, because feeding people is biblical. I mean, Mm -hmm. you know, and I think of every Sunday how we're coming to a holy table to be fed, you know, so I feel like even the theology is there. What I have personally done the most work in has been with folks who are experiencing food insecurity. So Hmm. there's different definitions of that depending on who you ask, but basically it's, you don't know where your next meal is coming from. And I think that there's so much overlap as well with food justice work, racial justice work, social justice work, environmental justice work. I mean, it intersects almost every other kind of justice work there is. It's super relevant and it's super important in my opinion. And I would love to hear more folks talking from that perspective and also working together and connecting it to the folks that are already doing great work and making sure that rather than kind of being our own, you know, silos of what we do in kind of our justice work, really recognizing the interconnectedness of all of our work and and partnering together. There's another group of people I've been listening to, and those are folks who have been incarcerated specifically around drug use and how our society has criminalized drug use and abuse. And that strips folks of their voices. If as a society we were to understand drug use and abuse as a mental health issue, we might engage in conversationally differently. And this is heightened during holiday seasons, right? Mm. And I've just been curious as about how to listen to those voices and how to shift culture, change the narrative, so that particular times of the year aren't trigger points for people that leads to more jail time, which, again, perpetuates the cycle. I like, Stephanie, that food justice workers is a clear, concise set of people, but I'm interested about incarceration and and drug use and abuse, especially as we look at the legalization of of marijuana, right? Like, so we've got now within our church context, people who are using marijuana for lots of purposes that doesn't get criminalized. Yet there's another segment of the population where it is criminalized. How does the church hold that tension? 
particularly around holiday seasons, when we see a ramp up of criminal activity or certain activities being criminalized. And I think if we think about how the folks in prison, especially if it's a felony, sometimes their right to vote is taken away, which is literally removing their voice, right? In a way, in the way that they vote, right? In the way that they're not allowed to vote, it removes their voice in our government. I'm also thinking about like, I think the, you know, drug use and abuse is a symptom, right? Of oppression. It's a symptom of depression. It's a symptom of historical trauma and all of those things. And how do we, I think so often we view it as this moral or personal failure of somebody rather than seeing how it's connected to this larger problem in our society and how we view mental illness and how we view oppression or all of those different things or how we don't look at oppression, right? Maybe those are the voices that we need to hear are those who are oppressed. Let's take a look at Isaiah. I I love this passage from Isaiah. It kind of gives us an outline of all the things that we should be doing, right? Bring good news to the oppressed, bind up the brokenhearted, all of this. And Isaiah is writing to a group of people who are experiencing oppression and feeling maybe hopeless. What do you think Isaiah's message would sound like to those who are privileged versus to those who are oppressed? Recently, I found myself in a conversation. A lot of communities are talking about reparations. Hmm. And I found myself in a conversation around reparations. And this isn't a direct quote, but someone with, within the group said something like, well, that's not a problem anymore. <laughs> there was a collective gasp on one side of the room. Like, really? Did, that, did you just say that? For some folks in a particular privilege might hear that and say, well, we don't need to proclaim liberty to the captives because who's captive anymore, right? Like that was during Isaiah's time. That's not, that's not an issue for us. Hmm. So we can move on to the next thing. That could be a response. And when I think about this question, I think about it in kind of a, a weird way because I would almost think that to the folks who who were oppressed in this context to his audience that Isaiah's message may actually be challenging and more challenging than someone who was privileged to hear it because I was thinking that maybe the folks at that time who were feeling the oppression would look around it and they would not see the garlands and the garments of salvation and the robes of righteousness and the jewels and you know the stuff that it says in the in the text and i would almost think that for someone who was coming from a privileged position who is going to suffer less with issues of oppression that they would potentially be more attuned to hearing the messages of hope and joy and creation you know, to be fair, I think that both the privileged and the oppressed can look around and see the same destruction and devastation in the world that we have today and that we had back then. This good news and this liberation and justice that's referenced in the text, both groups of people can think that these things are far off, you know, when we look around. But I think that for folks who are privileged, one of the privileges is they can choose to be removed from the worst of it whether it be, you know, social injustices, racial injustice, even the negative effects of climate change, you know, or whatever it is. Oftentimes the message to people who are privileged and oppressed are the same messages, but they are 
received differently and they're acted on differently. Hmm. So if I say, well, we have to feed people, you know, someone's thinking, well, yes, I need to eat. And somebody, someone else is thinking, well, I can't eat, you know, so it's, it's the same message. Um, it oftentimes just falls differently depending on who's hearing it. When you're wanting change and you're wanting action, it's not necessarily messaging, but, you know, how do I get this to land? How do I get you to care about this particular issue? Or how do I get you to hear this particular issue and think now is the time to act on it? It's so interesting because sometimes, you know, you can preach a sermon and like what people hear is sometimes very different from what you thought you said. And different people hear different things, just like you said, Lindsay. And I know like I serve, there's a little white congregation and a little native congregation that I serve and I'll preach differently, right? Like the one I'm like afflicting the comfortable and the other I'm like comforting the afflicted and, and my sermon will shift based on kind of what I'm talking. I'm trying to give the same message, but I'm trying to send it a little differently based on who's there. What good news do the oppressed need to hear right now? And maybe who are the oppressed as you think about answering that? I think that goes back to one of the points we made before that, you know, there are so many people that are oppressed by something that it's hard to single out, you know, who needs to hear particular messages. Um, But I know one thing, at least on the racial justice front, um, for me is, you know, I always try to remember things are moving even when you don't see them moving. Hmm. Also the message of just the work that has to be done, the listening that has to be done and the being uncomfortable that has to be done, Hmm. I think is all things that are important when we're we're talking about change and and talking to people who are oppressed. Lindsay, I, I love what you said about being uncomfortable in the moment thinking about reflecting on the season of Advent and thinking about this kind of waiting period and it's dark, you know, cause it's winter and the days are shorter and kind of being uncomfortable and kind of sitting, sitting in that tension. But Lindsay, as you were kind of getting at like this hope and this faith that things will get better, that they are getting better, that things are moving, even if we can't see it. And as we've already said, the list of, the folks who are oppressed is so long, you know, whether it be the poor, the LGBTQIA plus community, minorities, various religious groups, immigrants, the earth, women, children. I mean, it's, it's such a long list. But I think that the message in this reading and the message in this season of hope, I think that's applicable for everyone. I really do. And this message of hope is important for all of us so that we can remember that God is still amidst us in a world that is full of oppression and injustice, you know, and that those things can both be true at the same time. And, you know, us holding that tension. One thing that gives me hope is thinking about how God moves through us in these works of working toward justice and peace, that God is there even just, you know, through us and showing up in the world through those works. And I think it's important to hear again and again, too, like I said, that God is still dwelling within us as well, you know, that we have this divine indwelling and, you know, in a literally warring and chaotic world, God can faithfully, you know, consistently be a place of peace and stability within that. Those kinds of messages, you know, I think is is applicable for everyone to hear right now. Sometimes I like to, like a text like this, and I like to imagine, okay, who am I in this? 
scripture. Mm-hmm. Sometimes I like to envision myself as the prophet. I'd love to be the prophet. I want to be the one who is out there standing in the wilderness, calling people to, to shift behavior. Other times I'm clearly in the basket with those who are experience oppression. Mm. I'm clearly a voice that's being marginalized or dampened. And sometimes all of this is happening simultaneously. I'm in the space of privilege. What that means is that I too have to hold tight to God. I too have to be looking for, advocating for that hope. There's an image that I, either I made it up or I saw it, I'm not sure, but it's, we'll just say it's a dandelion coming up out of a crack in the sidewalk. I remember being in Hawaii, I was just there recently, and it's volcano. The islands were created out of volcano. Volcano, by definition, there is destruction that happens, but then out of that destruction is this this life. And it just mm. was amazing to me to sort of traverse or walk over these rocks where, you know, if you're barefoot, your feet are going to get cut. But then you come across this space of lush plant out of this rock. It is a reminder to me that as people of God, we speak to being co-creators. We're the ones who can help make that hope manifest, that hope real, that hope tangible for people in the world. And sometimes we can do that from a place of privilege. Sometimes we can do that as a prophetic voice. Sometimes we're doing that from a space where we are experiencing oppression. But at all times and all places, God is calling us to be co-creators in the midst of that and to proclaim the good news of God. I can't remember it's like a proverb, but it was like, when moving forward, the boat may rock. And so like, you know, if you're trying to go forward, sometimes that can mean things will be a little shaky, right? And right now, I think good news for a lot of people would be peace. As what somebody else said, I think in a previous uh, season, they were like, not cheap peace, not peace that comes by a military force, or we just are quiet because we're afraid, but peace that's like, meaning all things are in right relationship kind of peace. Isaiah's vision is seems to be, you know, one of like reconciliation and justice and all of this really positive stuff. Where do we have the farthest to go in achieving it? Uh, what is our greatest area for growth as a church in this? And I'll offer up my suggestion or one of my thoughts is I think our church is so tied up in empire and institution that we often struggle with how, how do we do that because we're so worried about holding on to our church building or holding on to whatever trappings of empire that we have that sometimes that limits us from doing things kind of to that point um and also kind of to what i mentioned before the willingness to be uncomfortable Mm. growth is always uncomfortable changing things is always going to be uncomfortable and i think if we always seek out comfort if we always seek out what's easy then we're going to be hesitant to you know do the things that we need to do to get to those goals, to reconciliation, to growing better and to um, representing communities better, or whatever the end goal is. Um, we don't get to those things unless we are uncomfortable. Every conversation isn't going to be easy. Every act isn't going to be easy. There's going to be, you know, things on our end that require us to be selfless and to put ourselves last. 
you know, that can be difficult for a lot of people, but it, it's important to get to those places. I completely agree, Lindsay. And I really, I love how you, again, were talking about like that authenticity and sitting with that discomfort, you know, and confessing our sins, really, and acknowledging how, you know, our own ways of oppression and injustice in order to like authentically reach this point of right relationship, as Shaniqua said earlier, you know, with each other, with the planet. I think it's really important for the church to remain stable in what's already been taught, you know, Christ's messages of healing and forgiveness and love and mercy and justice, you know, and just remembering to remain stable in that. Again, especially um, as Shaniqua is kind of getting at, it takes a concerted effort for us, you know, to really stay stable in that space. So, our intentions have to be clear, you know, as a church and, and as parishioners, and the church should intend to fully speak, think, feel, and act like justice, mercy, love, and healing. You know, I was having a conversation with someone recently, and they were telling me that trust in institutions as a whole, you know, including religious institutions, is at a low. And a lot of people are throwing the baby being the church and possibly God too, out with the bathwater. And mm. I think that the church has perpetuated and in some ways still does perpetuate injustice. And it's important to recognize that. And at the same time, though, the church is a, in a unique position to be a place of healing and to be a place of justice and reconciliation. And I think just really growing in into that space would be great. And I think another point too that I... I have felt and I've had a couple conversations recently with folks about in terms of areas of growth for the church as well is encouraging people to discern how their gifts may be utilized for healing and justice if they can't serve in a more physically active justice role. I think that sometimes when we speak about justice, we speak about it looking a certain way or being a certain way. And I think we accidentally exclude large groups of people who can help and who want to help but for whatever reason, they can't attend the same marches or rallies that other folks can, whether it be, you know, physical limitations or age or otherwise. And I think that really the church encouraging folks to discern, again, what their gifts are, what their interests are, what their strengths are, and how can that be utilized in this work for justice and peace, I think is a good question that I would love to hear asked more. I am definitely hearing that, Stephanie, that I'm so glad you said that. I preach so much about like, if we want to be changed, we can't be doing it on our butts on Sunday morning between 10 and 11 a.m. Like we have to literally get out of the building and go do that. And I know I've preached that if you have been baptized, you are a minister in God's church. It, you know, you need to figure out what that ministry is. And we as a community can help you discern that. But I'm going to shift for a second and talk a moment about the psalm. It sort of gives comfort to some who are sorrowing, but the psalmist says that the joy and laughter comes after the Lord has restored the fortunes of Zion. And how does this psalm read to folks who don't have fortunes? And I'm thinking about this because we talked about joy earlier. Is it possible to find joy without our fortunes being restored? I think in terms of earthly fortune, um, so you know, I'm thinking money, Mm-hmm. it's hard for people to care about other things. You know, if you're hungry, if you don't have a place to live, you know, those, it's just, it's hard to live in the moment to be happy in those moments. And of course there are other, you know, spiritual fortunes, you know, that I think people can have. I think the balance there is, 
you know, having those, but like I said, suffering earthly. It's, it's a hard balance. Maybe it's hard to hear that, you know, joy is on the other side of fortune, you know, when you are in a place where either earthly or spiritually, you feel like you are unfortunate. How do we share that message and, and are also inclusive of people or who aren't able to have certain things? I think some of it is perspective. And like Lindsay said, how we define fortunes. One of the things that we do on Sunday morning is offer a breakfast to go to folks who might have need of food in the morning. And this gentleman came a little bit later than our regular offering and asked if we had anything left. And I said, you know, I don't know. Let me go see. And I went in the closet. I got him. We had the toothbrush and a snack pack of chicken. And, you know, I just put some things in a bag so he could have a bag to go. And he said, uh, it is fortunate that I ran into you this morning. And he said, I am so, I gave him a cup of coffee. He said, thank you so much. He was filled with gratitude from my perspective, the meager offering that I was able to give on that day. As he said, thank you. And I said, you're welcome. I reframed myself because he said he was good that he ran into me, right? So this was about a person coming into contact with another person and being respected and received. And that just shifted my entire day. Hmm. That sometimes the fortune that I may, in my mind, want to be restored might not be the fortune that God has for me to be open to. Glenna, your story reminded me of something that happened to me a couple of years ago. I was serving at Haywood Street Congregation, which is a United Methodist church in Asheville, North Carolina, and their ministry, um, so folks who were experiencing homelessness would come and there would be, you know, warm, fresh, hot food, you know, on ceramic plates, and it was just really, really well done. I, I love that uh, church and its mission, but I remember at the end of the meal, I was taking a plate, and one of the visitors said to me, bless you. And I mean, when I say I felt that, <laughs> I mean, I felt that. And again, it, it's changing that perspective, right? It's someone who came because they're hungry and they don't have a home right now. And who knows what their story is. And you know that they're struggling, right? Um, more than I could even imagine. And they bless me. Gosh, when I say that I saw Jesus that day and that man, I mean, seriously, seriously. The question about finding joy without fortunes being restored, and is that even possible? I think that this is such an important and thought-provoking question, and I love thinking about it. And kind of I think where I land on it is that I think that faith at some point can lead to joy. And I really loved the mention about the difference between earthly fortunes and spiritual fortunes, um, because I think that's really important when talking about this, because everyone has already said, you know, how it, it's really hard to think about an earthly fortune when you're really struggling, you don't, you know, you're struggling to have to put food on the table, you know, et cetera. In the church, we, we talk about the spiritual fortunes, the treasures stored up in heaven, and, the, you know, the biggest miracle of it all the redemption and reconciliation through Christ to God. It's holding that tension and not taking away from the reality of suffering in the world, but 
I think seeing how faith may offer a pathway to experiencing joy amidst a suffering world. Lindsay, after you sort of reframed the fortune idea, I was thinking about is fortune, fortune can be relationships, fortune as community, you know, and I think sometimes people think of power as the ability to make people do something or the authority you have, but I think power exists in relationships and the more relationships you have, the more fortunate you are in that sense that you could have community. And I was thinking about our, as indigenous people, right, we lost a lot of our land, most all of it, and uh, a lot of our communities. But I would say that, so our fortunes haven't been restored in that sense. But I think in terms of community, you can see how quickly they can get things done. And that's one of the things I always brag about our our diocese, right? We don't have lots of money, but if we need a potluck together in a minute, we know who to call and grandma so-and-so and auntie such-and-such and uncle so-and-so, they can, you know, one's going to bake pie, one's going to make potato salad, you know, they're going to have it together. And if we don't have food, which is what happened a lot in my household growing up with my grandparents, maybe we don't have the food to make something. We know who to call because they get government food sometimes and we know who to call. We could turn that stuff into some good things if needed be. The psalm gives hope of a better future for those suffering or in grief. And some of you have already sort of told stories, but where do you see this taking place? I think I see it taking place in a variety of ways on both big and small levels. Similar to what you mentioned, um, you know, as a child, there were moments where, you know, we too needed, you know, assistance in certain areas. And so I think, you know, just being an adult and, and small things like, you know, going to the grocery store and picking out what I like, that kind of thing. That's kind of, for me, on the other side of, of grief, on the other side of, of suffering. You know, I think those are small ways that it manifests itself. I, I think in, in bigger ways, when you think about, you know, I just think of historically about some of the ways that things may have been before that we can, you know, maybe we're not all the way on the other side of, but we can see changes in the way things are. I guess an example I would give is there was a time when, I guess like gay marriage wasn't wasn't a protected right in this country, you know, now all 50 states. So there are examples of that happening, of things being on the other side of, of suffering and grief. What gives me hope of a better future amidst the suffering and the grief is the people who continue working towards a better future mm. for all, despite the suffering and the setbacks and the immense challenges to even doing that. Folks have almost every reason to, to give up the faith, so to speak, you know, to say it's not possible to do it. It's not worth it. It's too hard. No one will help me. No one will care. I'll be prevented from doing it. Uh, you know, nothing I can do can change the outcome. And I think these are these are real challenges and real fears. But this is where I think the faith component has to come in for us, especially folks who you know, put their heart and soul into justice work, because that's that's how we feed our hearts and our souls. I think without it, we can feel like, like a plant cut off from its roots, and we're just like withering away because we're not replenishing that. Faith requires us, I think, to believe without seeing, it requires us to believe and know that God is still present, is still with us, is still among us, despite all of the suffering, all of the grief, all of the reasons that it seems, you know, to not do this work. And so hope in combination with faith is helpful when thinking about the future, especially in terms of suffering and grief. One of the organizing universals that I 
used frequently is all organizing is reorganizing. Hmm. Working with those who are experiencing homelessness, we're not seeing the numbers go down. The numbers are going up. And post-pandemic, the numbers are rising exponentially really, really quickly. Uh, and it's mm. hard to keep up. One of my colleagues in this work, one of the organizers said, you know, I've been particularly between 2020 and now it's been a real slog. You've got the health crisis, racism coming to a particular juncture and poverty hitting in a, a multitude of ways in a education desert, food desert, opportunity desert. And so all of these just and it was overwhelming. And this organizer took a step back and said, I can't do this anymore. Like things are getting worse. And during that time, I guess did some discernment or some soul searching and came back and said, okay, uh, I'm going to transition into the policy side of this. I'm not quitting the work. I'm going to do it from a different angle. And not only that, but help recruit someone to fill the organizing space that he was departing from, right? So there was no mm. void. He found someone who had the energy and the optimism and the drive to continue the good works that he had started but could no longer do but are still so desperately needed. This is hard work to restore the fortunes, to be consistent with joy and hope. It is countercultural. Hmm. And sometimes hmm. we need a break, but having the relationships, having the community to be able to step in so that you can discern the best way for you to continue the work, I think is also really valuable. And I just heard a sermon about Advent in there because you said, you know, he took time or she took time to discern what they were going to do. So they're not ending the work. They're just shifting how it went. And that's a great time. Maybe Advent could be a time for that. I just wanted to add, um, I was having a conversation with my sister and this kind of to your point. And I, I said, the way that we have progress is that we acknowledge what has happened so far, but we also acknowledge that things can always be better. Hmm. You know, and I, and I, so was telling her, I think people either fall in one of two camps. Um, you never acknowledge how far we come, or, you, or you're always seeking progress, or you know, you don't. You live in the past. Um, so I think both of those are necessary for us to keep hope and to continue to progress towards the future. I think that we all have in mind for everyone. This last year, I for the first time did was a chaplain at our camp, which means you run all of the stuff that happens at the camp pretty much, and. Our camp is unusual to most Episcopal camps. We don't have very much money. We don't have a lot of campers, but almost all of them have a lot of issues like historical trauma, trauma, like abuse and all of this kind of stuff. That was a place where I saw hope for those in suffering. And, and when I first got them, like, I am never going to do this. Like only three of them said that they were Episcopalian. Only five of them said they were Christian. And like, I, we had to like shift the, the woman that I was doing it with. We had to shift our sort of planning. And then some of them said they didn't even want to be there. Their grandma just kind of dropped them off. One just got out of treatment. It was like just this totally different than what I anticipated. And, and if you'd ask me that day, I'd be like, never, ever will I ever do this again. And then 
like to see the transformation that took place in them over that week, like by the time the day that they were leaving, they're like, I want to come back. Are you going to be here next year? I don't want to leave. Just like all of them, even the one that didn't identify as Christian took communion that day and they didn't have to. Like I was like, this is optional, but they all did. And I was just, it was so moving. And that was a place where I, where I saw hope and hope of a better future because, you know, these are young people who are, are growing up. And, and I hate to say young people are the future because I believe that they are the present, both in the, that they are a gift, but also that they are here now and, and are important members of our community now. What thoughts or ideas or tips do you have for preaching Advent 3? I have a couple. I, I, I heard like things of like oppression and reconciliation, prophetic voice, one idea, which most people don't preach on the psalm, but we that was probably what generated the most conversation today, you know, asking that question, is it possible to find joy without our fortunes being restored? Or what 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 is our fortunes? Ask folks to kind of reflect and think about that, maybe talk to their neighbor type of thing. I have a lot of small congregations, so I can do that. What are we called to as ministers in this church? What is our ministry? What are we going to discern about and get folks to sort of do that? and maybe even have something to write that down and maybe put it in the offering plate when we send it around. What is their ministry? Um, and if they don't know, maybe they just write their phone number and we meet with them in a small group of people to help them discern what that could be. This kind of goes back to towards the beginning when we talked about light um, and darkness. I think scripture often references seeing you know, the light of God and of Jesus through us. That, to me, represents showcasing our gift and our personal ministry with others that will allow us to present our best foot towards others. When the Spirit shines through you, what is reflected? I might ask people to think more deeply about an abiding joy. What's a joy that we can carry over after this season has passed? And then how might we share that joy so that others may experience God's love more tangibly? Hmm. Shaniqua, like you and Lindsay, we're both saying about discerning our gifts of ministry and, and our gifts in general and seeing how we can put that to use. And Lindsay, as you were talking about the light and dark imagery, and again, just thinking about how through our works, we can be those points of reflection of this divine holy light, you know, in the world through our works, through our gifts, and through Lindsay, as you said, you know, letting spirit flow through you and, and guide you. Also, speaking about kind of the earlier conversations about light and dark, I think reminding folks of the space of Advent, you know, that it's kind of like a waiting space. It's kind of like, again, it's darker, literally outside, you know, for us here in the in the US. And we're just kind of waiting. We can use that time to discern and to prepare ourselves and to take inventory. I think there's also it's a good time for reconciliation and confession in terms of taking a pause to reflect on what hasn't worked in the past. Lindsay, as I think you you mentioned earlier about where can we go from here and using that kind of pause to do that and to prepare ourselves for it. I think that these are good things to kind of keep in mind and to preach on. The other thing that we didn't touch on much is that Advent really is that season where we can claim the already but not yet. Mm. Jesus has already been born, 
but we are preparing for the arrival of the Christ child. God has already shown us that God makes the ordinary extraordinary, but we are still preparing ourselves to receive that. So how can we live like our fortunes have in fact already been restored? Mm. Advent, wilderness, short days, it's harder sometimes, it's harder to claim that victory, claim that win, claim that joy when the sun goes down at four o'clock in the afternoon. (laughs) Right. That's exactly what we're being called to do, right? That's why we're called to live in a particular way. And how do we claim that in a way that's not overbearing or filled with platitude, but genuine and heartfelt and reflective and responsive. Uh, That's a lot to preach on in four weeks or even just on Advent three. (laughs) But we are to proclaim the already not yet. We've already been saved. Thank you so much for being willing to be guests on the podcast. I know our, I appreciate you sharing your wisdom and stories and I know our, our listeners do too. Thank you so much. It was so good to converse with you all and to meet you all. Thank you so much for all of your your input and your experience and your, your discussion points. I had such a good time. Thank you. Thank you. All of you guys, I, I enjoyed the, the conversation. If you want to learn more about Beloved Community, visit episcopalchurch.org forward slash beloved hyphen community. Thanks to our guests, Lindsay, Stephanie, and Glenna. Thanks also to our production team, especially Chris and Asma. If you found joy regardless of your restored fortunes today, please rate, review, and of course, share our podcast. Until next time, let your light shine. For 100 years, the generous donations of Episcopalians and supporters to the Good Friday offering have helped the Christian presence in the land of the Holy One to be a vital and effective force for peace and understanding among all of God's children. A lifeline of hope in times of genuine need in years past, the Good Friday offering continues to support churches, medical programs, and schools today. Now more than ever, we celebrate the centennial of this historic fund. Your support is needed. Give online at IAM dot ec slash good friday offering or text gfo to 91999 good friday offering celebrating a century of gifts and rejoicing in 2000 years of good news